Welcome to the Chrisman Commentary Daily Mortgage News Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Chrisman. Topics on today's episode include the rise of the dollar, my interview between two Robert Chrismans on the origination landscape as we enter 2023 and the intrinsic value of a mortgage company, and thoughts on the Fed's direction. Thanks to this week's podcast sponsor, MCT, and its hedge advisory comprehensive capital market software and services that empower secondary marketing performance. To learn more, visit mct-trading.com. This isn't specifically mortgage-related, but I saw this the other day and, and thought it was worth sharing on the podcast. Did you know that the dollar's robust status as a reserve currency owes much to the strength of the U.S. economy? But it also derives from the dollar's ample liquidity, which is partially a result of countries maintaining pools of dollar reserves to buy oil. That link was forged in the early 1970s, not long after President Richard Nixon decoupled the dollar from gold. In 1974, Washington and Riyadh struck a deal by which Saudi Arabia could buy U.S. Treasury bills before they were auctioned. In return, Saudi Arabia would sell its oil in dollars not only enlarging the currency's liquidity, but also using those dollars to buy U.S. debt and products. Saudi Arabia then convinced other OPEC nations to invoice oil in dollars rather than in a basket of different currencies. Interesting. Yes, United Wholesale Mortgage is top tier in the credit world, and brokers are in the bottom tier. But this allows thousands of them top tier pricing under UWM's umbrella, considering UWM's new charge for credit reports. It includes supplements, reissue fees, and the like. Yes, if the loan is brokered elsewhere, a new credit report will be pulled, but if brokers are closing 20 out of 100 deals and pulling credit on all 100 but sending a portion of those elsewhere, it can be argued that they still come out ahead using the UWM price on the ones they don't fund. As you can imagine, the news prompted several emails from those in the credit industry. Quote, Given the information in the video, UWM is allowing loan officers to set up their own accounts. I'm assuming the price is a flat rate for individuals or joint reports, but that it is not specified. If it's just for an individual, most CRAs can beat that all day, along with the supplements, secondary use fees, reissue fees, etc. bundled in. If it's a flat fee for both, perhaps UWM is buying some fees somewhere else, such as in UWM's processing fee or in other products. End quote. Another email pointed out that, quote, it would appear that the credit report would be owned by a UWM cradle to grave and to satisfy permissible purpose, the UWM broker could not sell or broker that loan with that credit report to anyone else in the market, end quote. Apparently true. For today's interview, I wanted to welcome back to the show Rob Chrisman. You know, the guy everybody thinks I am when they say, thanks Rob, after interviewing for the podcast, even though they claim to listen to the podcast with regularity. Anyways, I wanted to talk to him about what's going on in the current lending landscape. I want to ask you what's going on in the mortgage industry and as we start 2023, and before you say nothing much is going on, nothing much has been going on the last couple of weeks. People had time to do nothing. We're back back in the swing of things. So, so what's the chatter out there? We are back in the swing of things to some extent. There are ample rumors of changes going on. I believe that 
Harrington correspondent yesterday, i.e. Wednesday, is rumored to have done a big reduction in force or layoff. The point that I try to make people is that just because it's January doesn't mean the environment has necessarily changed. It's nice to see a little rally in the bond market, meaning rates have come down. But the rate environment is the rate environment. And companies are still dealing with the winter, i.e. if your house is under three feet of snow, it's kind of hard to uh, get an appraiser to uh, crawl into the basement to look at it. Uh, if you're in the Midwest or in the Sierra Nevada uh, and the, uh, the rain in other parts of the nation and the cold haven't helped. So as an industry, we're dealing with the same issues that we were dealing with in November and December, namely volumes are down, applications are down, rates are relatively high, and you have the seasonality factor. So I think that managers and owners are coming to grips that, you know, even though it's January, it's not like we're going to see rainbows and unicorns all of a sudden, and that continued cuts need to be made and continued vigilance in terms of business models. So it's not a great environment, but it's important to remember that people need home loans because people need a place to live. And we tend to get mired down in these statistics about, you know, single family home sales, single family home starts, multifamily starts, multifamily, this, that, the other thing, occupancy rates, home ownership rates, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And overall, we're going to get a lot of noise, but overall, people still need a place to live. And we're in a business of helping them with the financing. So it's a tough environment. It's not as good as it was in terms of margins and revenue and volume as it was in 2020 and 2021. But, you know, we'll still do a couple trillion this year, probably. And somebody has got to do that business. Forget 2020 and 2021. MBA's origination estimates this year and, and other forecasts have originations falling about 25% from last year. I need you to, I need you, I need to interrupt you in a rare editable interruption. So the NBA, the, the peak of the industry, we we did about four trillion. And the MBA thinks we're gonna do about thinks we did like two point. I don't know, five, seven trillion or whatever, 2.3 trillion last year. Yeah, I, thought it was, I thought it was closer to one nine to two, two, but you know. Well, but still, it's not the worst year ever by any stretch of the imagination. It's just that it's everybody staffed up, everybody lawyered up, everybody staffed up, and it's coming off that staffing. It's, it makes it just seem worse than it really is. But a $2 trillion year is still. It's still a good year by historical standards, but. And maybe it is due to companies lawyering up or staffing up, but the cost to originate a loan is as high as it's ever been and still going up despite the the increased adoption of technology in the space. Are companies still behind the eight ball when it comes to figuring out their hiring and firing and, and various milestones that that they're looking at to to do cuts or expand? Like it seems seems, you know, we've had almost a year of this now for companies to figure it out, but they're still being very reactionary. I don't disagree in the light, in the slightest. The the companies that are still there 
they are being reactionary to some extent. It's hard to get ahead of the production and revenue curve if you're used to doing a certain amount of business and you've staffed up for that and you have the technology for that. Your mortgage factory is in place to produce X number of widgets a week, a month, a year. And you've spent money training employees, you've spent money on systems, you've you know, created this corporate culture and you've, you've all been through COVID together and you've been through this and you've been through that and you've got people who know the system and you've got loan officers who maybe they never ask for extensions or concessions, but maybe they only do two loans a month. So they're actually costing the company money, but they know the system. So what do you do with those? What do you do with those ops people that have been with you for you know five years, but you just don't need them because you have other ops people who have been with you for 10? It's, it's some very, very tough management decisions that have been made in the later half of 2022 and will continue to be made in 2023. It's just human nature, but um, it's, it's a, it's a t- tough environment and it's, you know, it's not easy. Well, let's talk gaming the system because now you're speaking my language. So, you know, what's to keep somebody with the way technology is these days where you can outsource a lot of functions from saying, I'm just going to time the market. Look, things are things are predicted to be bad here for another six or eight months. That's probably going to be the, the worst of it. Obviously, we're not purport- purporting to have a crystal ball here, but that's probably going to be the worst of it. Worst of it. Let's hop in and in August of 2023, ride it up until uh, you know the Fed the Fed goes through another quantitative easing cycle. And then when the Fed signals they're going to shift again to hawkish policy, shut down all my operations and wait again. Why why did these companies? Is it is it the egos of the owners that keep them thinking they're going to be profitable in in down times? Or are people stubborn? What you know? Why why not game the system and just get in while the getting's good? Well, you use an interesting term there, game gaming theory. You get into gamblers theory. You get into behavioral economics and the fact that a lot of these owners have been through some tough times and, and they may think that they're the smartest men and women in the room and they're going to <laughs> they're going to be in that landing craft and D-Day and the, and the person, the guy to the right of them might get shot and the guy to the right or the left of them might get injured but they're going to be just fine and they're going to outweigh their competition. But they say that most gambling losses aren't caused by gambling losses. Most gambling losses are caused by people who lost money and they're trying to get it back. And you're, we're in a situation now where companies, many companies, I will say this, have gotten to a break-even point. But if volume continues to dip, they're still going to be hurting. And, you know, if you're an owner of a company and your net worth is, you know, five or 10 or 20 million or 50 million or a hundred million, and you think I could either gut out this business cycle or I could sell it and take that five or 10 million or whatever and put it into two year T bills and earn, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars or millions of dollars just on interest income. Maybe that's not so bad. But it does, it does, it does bring into play egos. It does play into uh, 
into people thinking that they are smarter than their competition, that they're, they've slimmed down and they're, they've, they've weathered 2022 and they're going to succeed in 2023 and their co- competitors aren't. And their competitors may be thinking the same thing. So despite technology spend, despite you know cutting expenses, despite this, despite that, it's still going to be a very tough environment. And I think we're going to continue to hear stories about mergers and acquisitions and companies closing and so on as we move through the year. Well, let's talk gambling to win your money back because that was the most interesting thing you said there. Speculate for me. Yeah, at what at what point? Actually, let me back up and give a little more context. Publicly traded mortgage companies, your your rockets and and UWMs and uh, you know Bank of America types, the and uh, Mr. Cooper and yada yada. Well, their stock prices have fallen in many cases more than ninety percent from the peak of where they were. At what point does a mortgage company become a good buy? And maybe that's theoretical more than practical the way I asked that, but, or are you in the camp that says I'd still short these mortgage companies? That's a very good question. This is my opinion only. It's not meant to be investment advice for anybody out there. The fact of the matter is there is a value to a mortgage company that has servicing. That's a, that's a valuable asset. You have that monthly cash flow. If you are a mortgage company that has very little servicing and tries to make all of its money on fee income or spread between its warehouse line and the mortgages that it's originating or capital markets gains between best efforts and mandatory, you know, earning that spread, that's a very tough business to buy, to want to buy into. So when you're looking at publicly traded stocks, yes, a lot of them have taken it on the chin. Because I will argue that a lot of them were overvalued to begin with when they went public. And who made a lot of money then were the venture capital funds or the private equity funds or the original owners. And they cashed out at very good levels. And who's left holding the bag are the people who bought the stock afterwards. You will, if you look at a graph of those companies' stock prices, Many of them have bottomed out and are starting actually to creep back up as their competitors go out of business. And so maybe it's a a decent time to buy a company that has a story to tell, that's unique from other companies, that has some servicing, that has a good reputation, a good track record, decent management. And I think we may see that through this year. So I want to close by asking or I guess suggesting you have as deep a Rolodex in this industry as anybody, you know, the best and brightest. Why did you, and you could have, you know, you could have brought people together. Why did you never want to run a mortgage company or, or be the the backer of a mortgage company considering the, you know, the, the privileged position that, that you could put together a, a fantastic enterprise with? Well, I ran a small subprime company back in the late 1990s that was owned by Crossland Mortgage, which was owned by First Security Bank. And we ended up being bought by Wells Fargo. And after that experience, and it was a good experience. I liked Crossland. I liked First Security Bank. And I liked certainly the people that worked for me. 
there was there was a lot of talent there. It's a very tough environment. It's like it's like saying, "Gee, I like to eat, so I think I'll own a restaurant," or "Boy, I know a lot of uh, people who make great waiters and waitresses, so I think I'll start a restaurant." But it's much much difficult. It's much more difficult than one would think running a mortgage company. And it requires a particular skill set. And frankly, my value or my knowledge set is more in capital markets and secondary marketing and hedging and so forth and being able to explain the bond market nuances to groups around the nation and talk about interest rates rather than making hiring and firing decisions. As I said earlier, it's very tough management position to be in in the latter half of 2022 and then 2023. Some really tough decisions have to be made, and it's no fun having to make those decisions. So, yeah, I've got a a nice Rolodex, and I know a lot of people. Interestingly enough, right now, there are a lot of companies that are laying off some really talented people. Some people that if you were going to start a mortgage company, they would they would do really well for you uh, by being hired, and they are you know out looking for jobs. So, just a tough environment, it's a cyclical business, and uh, it's not always fun. No, it's not fun. But it was so much fun having you on the podcast today. Thank you for making the time. <laughs> Anytime. We had a little rally in the bond markets yesterday after another sign of peak inflation, e.g. wage pressures are easing, with investors largely slugging with investors largely shrugging off stronger than expected data and hoggish leaning minutes from the December FOMC meeting. Minutes from the last Fed meeting showed the central bank grimly resolved to finish its war on inflation. Investors were looking for the Fed's rationale to raise its inflation target when various economic data were showing a slowdown. Both the bond and equity markets latched onto the hawkish comment that, quote, no participants anticipated that it would be appropriate to begin reducing the federal funds rate target in 2023, end quote. The minutes also noted the high level of uncertainty associated with the economic outlook, while the outlook for inflation remained tilted to the upside. Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari said he sees the Fed pausing its rate hikes at 5.40%, but notes rates could be taken potentially much higher from wherever the Fed pauses if there is slow progress in lowering inflation after the Fed pauses. There was no mention in the minutes, as expected, of any changes to their current balance sheet reduction in MBS. As far as economic releases went yesterday, November Jolt's job openings showed the record U.S. job market remains strong, with 10.46 million job openings in November. That's an increase in job openings versus October, and more than expected, indicating a continued imbalance between labor supply and labor demand. It equates to roughly 1.74 job openings for all workers officially counted as unemployed. A tight labor market is good for American workers, but bad for fighting inflation as the imbalance keeps upward pressure on wages. Separately, the December ISM manufacturing index dropped further into contractionary territory in October. The ISM for December hit its lowest level since May 2020 and marks the second straight month of contraction. The cumulative effect of rate hikes around the globe is curtailing inflationary pressures, but adversely impacting demand. The prices index for the December ISM manufacturing index saw its lowest print since April of 2020. 
Today's calendar is loaded with labor market indicators ahead of tomorrow's payrolls report. First up was challenger job cuts, in which U.S.-based employers announced 43,651 cuts in December, falling 43% from the 76,835 announced in November. The cuts in the fourth quarter are the highest quarterly cut amount since the fourth quarter of 2020. We've also received ADP employment in at 235,000, much higher than expected, but of questionable validity, and weekly jobless claims, which came in at 204,000, down from 225,000. We've also received the November trade deficit in at $61.5 billion. Later this morning brings the final December S&P Global Services PMI, Freddie Mac's primary mortgage market survey, and the Treasury announces sizes for next week's mini refunding, consisting of $40 billion of new three-year notes and $32 billion and $18 billion of reopened 10-year bonds and 30-year notes, respectively. FedSpeak resumes with Atlanta Fed President Bostich and St. Louis Fed President Bullard delivering remarks. We begin the day with agency MBS prices worse about an eighth, and the 10-year yielding 3.74 after closing yesterday at 3.71%. Let's wrap up with a joke and some housekeeping. You know, it's a five-minute walk from my house to the bar, but it's a 25-minute walk from the bar to my house. The difference is staggering. <laughs> Thanks again to today's podcast sponsor, MCT, and its hedge advisory, comprehensive capital market software and services that empower secondary marketing performance. To learn more, visit mct-trading.com. about the podcast or sponsoring opportunities, send me an email at robbie at robchrisman.com. Visit robchrisman.com for more information on our industry partners, access to archived commentaries, and how to subscribe to the daily mortgage news and commentary. To listen to or download past episodes of this podcast, search mortgage news on any platform you get your podcast from.